Jimmy? Are you here? Jimmy? Really, man? Do I have to call to yell at you for the one time you're late? You don't. He's just down the hall getting coffee in the break room. <sighs> Good morning, Jessica. Ohio, Baka! Jimmy must have had a long night in his garage if he already needs a pick-me-up. He was also talking to... what's his name? Uh, the board's emissary or whatever? You mean Mr. William H. George III, Esquire, special envoy to the Monster Island Board of Directors? Yeah, George III. He tried to flirt with me on my way here. Called me Bonnie, lass. I thought he was British, not Scottish. I know, right? Anyway... I almost went full-on magical girl on his snooty little face. <laughs> I doubt anyone on the island would have been upset if you did. On an unrelated note, I see the tour guide uniforms look good on you. Eh, lime green isn't really my color. But the blouse is nice, and the plaid skirt is... okay, I guess. So, besides chipping away at my already crumbling sanity, what brings you here? <laughs> Like I need an excuse to annoy my big brother. Correction, big pseudo-brother. Sarah warned me that you love correcting people's grammar. That's why she told me about all your buttons so I could push them. <sighs> I'm going to have a long chat with our sister when I get off work. You do remember time zones are a thing, right, Baka? Like, she'll probably be sleeping. Right. Anyway, I just wanted to let you know that I'm bringing Luke and Greg here with my first tour group for the day. And my group will watch for a while so that everyone can see what goes into making Monster Island's world-renowned radio show and podcast. That's the most sarcastic flattery I've ever heard, but I'll take it. Of course you will, Baka. Miss Perkins letting me know my first tour group is ready. See you in 20 minutes, Baga. The Monster Island Film Vault is filmed before a live studio audience. <sighs> this day just gets better and better. Live from the KIJU Studios in beautiful Ogasawara, this is The Monster Island Film Vault, Episode 40, The Misties vs. Gamera vs. Giron. Hello, Kaiju lovers, and welcome to The Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through tokusatsu. I am your host, the film curator here on Monster Island, Nate Marchand, and with me today are a pair of Monster Island tourists, one of whom you've already heard on this show. You know him, you love him, the host of the Earth Destruction Directive podcast, Luke Giaconetti. How you doing, Luke? Oh, Nathan, I am doing fantastic. Thank you for having me on the show. You know, the last time I was on here, we were talking about battle in outer space. Mm -hmm. It involved, on my personal behalf, it involved several plane rides and ending up at an island owned by my benefactor, Signore Dufo de Monzo. You know, the, mm -hmm. the owner of uh, Two True Freaks, as uh, anyone knows, and when he listens to Earth Destruction Directive, I thought maybe that's what's going to end up. You know, I, I had to, I had to make another trip back out here, and then all I know is I get this memo. 
right? And the memo says, oh, you need to go to Pensacola, Florida. Oh, (laughs) okay. I got friends in Pensacola. Sure, I'll go down there. It's like, no, 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 this is, and then I get a call from the lawyer, right? And the lawyer, he's like, no, 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 no. This is no social call. You will go and you will go down to a Florida. Okay, and you will go to the place in the Pensacola. I'm like, okay, man. So they send me the address. I go into this place, and it's like this whole building is like totally trash, right? But you they they it says go downstairs, go as low as you can go, get in the elevator, and go down. So I go all the way down to the sub basement, right? Oh, and then there's this train, and it's like I don't want to get on this train that goes into a giant tunnel in this basement, right? But the guy says you want to be on the network, you do this, right? Or you know, it's in Italian, so it's like I'm assuming that's what he's saying. My Italian is you know very limited, mm-hmm. so I get on it. And then it's like when you go on the Viking ship at Bush Gardens and you hit to the top and then you just fall and you're weightless. That's what it felt like. And I'm just flying and I pop out here. Oh, you know, it's like something I popped out here like on it's out on the back 40 somewhere. It's out behind all the buildings. It's out by like the the boiler or the, the tank farm oh. or something out there. And hmm. and I just kind of it's like, oh, wait. And so I wandered up and there was a tour group and uh, oh. said, yeah, why not? You know, <laughs> yeah. went in Rome, be a tourist. Right. So there you go. So yeah, that's why we're here. And. It just happened to, you know, I had a great tour guide. She was, she was a peach. She was fantastic, oh, yes. by the way. Just, just yes, uh, my, I, uh, uh, I didn't, I didn't quite catch her name. Jessica, Jessica Shaw. My, Jessica. Uh, yes, my pseudo right sister. My uh, pseudo well, sister uh, well, just, she, she was, she was fantastic. So you can, if you want to give some, uh, I don't know if there's a feedback card or something, but she was great. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, she's uh, she and the rest of her tour group are still sitting over there in the, you know, the, behind the the producer booth where Jimmy is right now, they know they're watching us right now because I guess she decided that everyone had to watch the show be broadcast live. Oh, she's already making snarky remarks. Of course she is, Jimmy. Of course she is. Well, I'm just glad that you got here safely. Although I will admit that place in Pensacola that you're talking about sounds eerily familiar. I'm not 100% sure why, but I didn't realize that one of those tunnels led here. That makes perfect sense because, you know, there is an entrance to the hollow earth here on the island, obviously. Did you hear the famous Doug is now here on the island hanging out? I did not know that. That is fantastic. I'm glad he's moving up in the world, literally. Yes, he is. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, quite literally. I've also uh, heard rumors that uh, he fancies Lady Baragon here on the island. So uh, I'm not sure uh, what to think of that right now. So, uh, yeah, Mm. we'll see how that goes. Good luck with that. And then also joining me today is my friend and collaborator and at least former podcaster, (laughs) Greg Meyer. How you doing, Greg? First time guest. Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, um, I I think I might have made a mistake. Um, (laughs) I I was supposed to go to the store, but my uh, GPS uh, on my phone, uh, I think it took me the wrong way. Uh, I was supposed to go to the grocery store and pick some stuff up from my wife. And, you know, she makes fun of me for kind of following the uh, ways a little bit too closely. <laughs> you know, it's Illinois and we have so many road closed <laughs> roads closed here because of potholes and road work and everything that um, uh, next thing I know, I'm somehow on an island. Yes. <laughs> ready to get on the, this tour. And so <laughs> since I was here, I was like, well, you know, I like history. I like sightseeing. So, oh, there you I, go. I just, you know, kind of take a look around. Yeah, you'll have to bring the wife next time. Is that uh, Mona? Is that correct? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, you should bring her the next time. By the way, which GPS are you using, if I may ask? Oh, uh, just the Waze system on my uh, iPhone. Ah, uh, okay. I was going to say, if it was Siri, you might have had a little bit better luck. I don't know. 
uh, you know, like at, at least it wasn't Apple Maps. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Oh, see, Jimmy agrees. Yeah, you said you're better off not using Apple Maps. Apple Maps, you'd end up in the middle of Pacific Ocean somewhere, probably. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I think I probably would have ended up next to Amelia Earhart. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that, that's for sure. Seriously, Jimmy? You met Miss Earhart once? I don't know if I want to know that story. I don't know how that works. But you know, at this point, considering that you miraculously survived the infamous war in space and you still won't tell me how, it's probably the same way that Miss Earhart survived. Either that or she's still waiting to be found by Captain Janeway. I mean, you know, <laughs> something like that. But I'm having the two of you gentlemen on to continue the year of... Camera! Although, at this point, I am really trying to figure out if it's genuinely fun or if it's just the Stockholm Syndrome, because I have been doing this for five months now. I had a nice little break with a pair of Godzilla movies in a row, and now I'm back to the Gamera Valley. Yeah, so today we're talking about Gamera versus Giron. And I know some people are probably going to disagree with my pronunciation of that, but I don't care. <laughs> no one can agree too, with how to pronounce it. Yeah, there's too, many, there's too many vowels in this monster's name, you know? <laughs> Guirin, Giron, Guirin. There's no good way yeah, to pronounce yeah. that name. Gilon. I've heard that too. Gilon, yeah. <sighs> well, they, yeah, they said, then you add in RL confusion yes. on top of that. And it's like, no. I mean, virus or virus or you know that was bad enough last time and now yes. with bv confusion and now we've got this uh, yeah let me tell you and as usual i as mandated by my orwellian overlords the monster island board of directors i have to watch this in the original japanese and you fellas get to watch the mst3k episode and then we have to compare notes because that's apparently how this series works i'm not jealous not jealous uh, uh, no lip from you, Jimmy. No lip. None. Mm. Well, in, in all fairness, he makes a fair point. But be that as it may, in all fairness to Gamma versus Gearin, Hedge and Greg and I watch the MST3K version versus the Japanese version. As compared to some of the earlier films, specifically Giant Monster Gamera, there's very little difference between what we now call the Sandy Frank dub, the international dub version of Gamera versus Guren, and the Japanese one from a content standpoint. Now, the advantage you have, Marchand, is that you get to listen to this film without that Sandy Frank dub. And this is true. that alone makes this a pleasant evening with a bowl of popcorn and a bottle of your favorite beverage to an onerous task to get through without Mike and the bots or Joel and the bots, say, excuse me. You get Mike and the bots. Oh. <laughs> God, well, I mean, come on, Joel, Greg. You, Mike, and, I, you yes. and I have been chatting a little bit about this. This is some of the best stuff in season three of the show. I'm just saying, oh, and I don't get to see it. Well, you can always challenge yourself and watch uh, the KTMA version of the episode. Mm. Possibly. Uh, <laughs> at some point, I might actually do that. I know the website where I can go do that. But related to that, today's toku topic will be because Akio, one of the K 
pennies in this movie is mildly obsessed, it seems, with traffic accidents. And there's a reason for that. And I had to research it. So the Toku topic will be the first traffic war in Japan. All right, gentlemen, let's go do this. Mm. Once again, Gamera is the heroic friend to all children. He spends the movie trying to keep the boys safe, whether that involves clearing a path through asteroids or fighting Giron out of benevolence. Giron is a vicious and cruel blade-headed monster created long ago by the Terran computers after they went haywire. He obeys the commands of Barbella and Flobella, acting as their guard dog, but turns on them after their computers are destroyed. After which, he attacks Gamera apparently out of pure nastiness. Space Gauss is one of a swarm of supposedly malevolent creatures who overran Terra. The Kennys of this film are the precocious yet adventurous Akio and Tom, who fly the Terran saucer just for fun and explore the alien planet out of curiosity. Once they learn the Terran spacewoman's true motives, they spend the rest of the movie attempting to escape or trying to help Gamera. Sorta. Barbella and Flobella are deceptive and hungry Terrans, planning to eat the boys' brains to gain their knowledge and then go to Earth to escape Terra. The cautious but caring Tomoko is Akio's younger sister, who tries to keep them out of trouble and tries to convince the adults the boys flew away in a spaceship. Officer Khan Kondo, aka Cornjob, is the goofy, incompetent policeman who looks after the kids and advocates for Tomoko. The caring but dismissive Kuniko and Elsa are Akio and Tom's mothers, respectively, who refuse to believe any of the crazy things the children talk about while also worrying about their missing sons. Like the previous movie, the human and kaiju plotlines are at first separate until the boys meet Gamera, at which point the plotlines unify. While Akio and Tom's motivation is to escape, the kaiju are either opposing this goal or attempting to help them with it. Giron and the space women are the problem. Giron kills a space scouse that attacks the Terran city. The space women hypnotize the boys into sleeping and shave Akio's head to eat his brain, but they are interrupted by Gamera's arrival. They sick Giron on Gamera, who wounds the big turtle, leaving him for dead at the bottom of a lake. The boys awaken but are captured by the Terrans and caged. The boys attempt to open their cage by shooting darts at the controls, which releases Giron. He attacks the space woman's ship as it flies away, cutting it in half. Flobella mercilessly shoots a wounded Barbella. The problem is solved by Gamera, with some accidental help from Akio and Tom. Gamera emerges from the lake and fights Giron again. The boys desperately hit buttons, launching a pair of missiles. One hits the building Flobella is in, and the other is intercepted by Gamera. The turtle kaiju throws it into Giron's shuriken port and blasts it with flames, detonating it. He then welds the Terran saucer back together with his flame breath and uses it to transport the boys back to Earth. Once again, the script by Nissan Takahashi is a simple story with a fairy tale like structure. While focused on a pair of child protagonists, it does have a subplot for the supporting cast back on Earth. Yoriaki Yuasa, once again pulling double duty by directing both the drama and special effects scenes, was given a marginally larger budget of 24 million yen despite the massive success of Gamera vs. Virus. Even so, this movie is a bit more ambitious than the previous one, what with its miniature set of an alien city. 
It also swaps out the ocean for outer space. Giron is a wacky but imaginative creation and a surprisingly well-built suit. However, due to the time crunch to meet the release date, a third monster named Monga was replaced by Space Gauss, which was a recycled suit spray-painted silver. Other techniques used in the movie include animation, pyrotechnics, matte paintings, and superimposition. Mercifully, there's much less stock footage than in the previous movie. Overall, the production values are slightly better than Gamera vs. Virus, but, but still not the best of the Showa Gamera series. This is yet another Gamera movie with a light, child-friendly tone despite its often gruesome violence. It has a moderate amount of gravitas since the Terran Spacewomen and Giron are presented as serious threats. With its fairytale-like story and outrageous monsters, this is a fantasy film despite its science fiction trappings. This isn't an experimental movie since it's very similar to both Gamera vs. Virus and even Toho's Monster Zero. As such, the movie reinforces the style of Gamera vs. Virus with its story, characters, themes, and alien villains, among other things. The movie was made to capitalize on the success of the previous Gamera movie. It was meant to entertain its core child audience. Box office figures are unavailable, but it was successful when released in Japan March 21, 1969. It was sold to syndicated television by American International Television starting in 1969 under the title Attack of the Monsters. It was dubbed by Titan Productions under the direction of voice actor Brett Morrison. In 1987, Sandy Frank Film Syndication released a previously unseen dubbed version recorded by Pedro Productions on VHS. This version was lampooned on Mystery Science Theater 3000 not once, but twice once on KTMA, and once on Comedy Central. Attack of the Monsters has since been released by countless VHS and DVD companies. It remains popular with Kaiju and MST3K fans, although much of their appreciation is ironic. It has a 4.2 with 2,389 ratings on IMDb. When originally released by AIP-TV, Giron's fight with Space Gauss was edited to remove the more gruesome violence, with the latter simply flying away after losing his foot. When released by Sandy Frank, the film was uncut, but new credits and on-screen text were added. That being said, the dub in this edition is atrocious with its flat acting and poor lip sync, to put it politely. There are a few forces at play. Most of the adults, namely the mothers, refuse to believe the kids' wild stories about Gamera and alien spaceships, especially when Tomoko tries to convince them of what happened. The one exception is Officer Khan, which at points puts him at odds with the mothers. Akio and Tom's curiosity gets them in trouble when they enter the spaceship and it flies away. Their naivete makes them easy to manipulate by the deceptive Terrans. The space women see the boys as food and not as people. In fact, when Barbella is injured, Flobella deems her useless, robbing her of personhood. Gamera's benevolence clashes with Giron's sadism. Some themes can be mined from this movie. The adults learn to trust what their children say and not disregard it all as fantasy. In turn, the movie is critiquing the cynicism of adults. Akio and Tom at least attempt to use cleverness to escape their captors and help Gamera. The space woman's disregard for non-Terran life is portrayed as evil. Gamera's benevolence and heroism are shown in a positive light. Akio reminds everyone 
often that humanity must work together to create a world without wars or traffic accidents. My contractual obligations are fulfilled, so now it's time for some Toku talk. All right, fellas, I have to be honest, that took a heck of a lot longer than it was supposed to, but it's not my fault. The equipment in the screening room kept screwing up. It kept malfunctioning, so I had to stop and play the movie again at least five or six times. My apologies. Well, actually, I, I watched in the entirety uh, Gamera versus Gyros, thinking that that was the, the movie I was supposed to be watching. Oh, uh, lovely. Mainly, mainly because Gamera versus Giron is like probably my favorite of all the Gamera movies, and I thought that I was uh, trying to go with one of the ones that I hadn't seen as often. But I'm kind of glad I did because it, it kind of relates to this episode in a way. Yes, it does. That was the previous MST3K Gamera movie. They skipped Virus. <laughs> But I'm assuming everything went off without a hitch for you, Luke. Oh, yeah, no problems. I mean, for me, <laughs> like I said, I had a uh, a glass of my favorite beverage. It was a gin and tonic. Oh, they serve gin and, and tonic uh, in the screening room now? Apparently. Oh, I snuck it in. But, uh... <laughs> oh, 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 yeah. If the board's lawyer, Mr. Raymond Martin, gives you any grief, I think I can uh, defend you. <laughs> I'll be honest. I said this last time. If we get into a thing between the island's lawyers and Demonzacor's lawyers, the war in space is going to look like, you know, a picnic in the park. So I'm not super concerned about that, personally. Oh, oh, what was that, Jimmy? Oh, really? The, the legal war in space. Oh, the, that sounds like a very interesting yeah. sequel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But anyway... You guys got to watch the MST3K episode. I watched it straight. So because you're the guest here, I'll ask you guys, what are your first impressions walking out of the screen room? Greg, why don't you go ahead? Yeah, sure. Like for me, it's just kind of like uh, revisiting with an old friend because I mean, I watched Mystery Science. Uh, I got into it in college, you know, buying the DVDs and catching up with the show after it had kind of gone off the air. I was always excited about watching the Gamera films because I've just heard so much about them uh, that they were these legendary films. And Gamera versus Giron was the one that I was kind of looking forward to the most because I, I think even then, you know, you could see gifts that were like the size of like uh, like a postage stamp or something, <laughs> you know, back in the e old days of the internet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I remember seeing uh, a Gamera, you know, doing the spinning motion. On- oh, <laughs> oh, oh, one word. Gymnastics. I mean, what do you say when you get to that? I guess in a way it's kind of the equivalent to when Godzilla, I don't know if it'd be equivalent to the flying dropkick or Godzilla literally flying. It's just one of those things like I have no words. (laughs) And if I remember correctly, because I've seen the MST3K episode, I just didn't get to watch it today. I think the joke there was just simply, you know what, guys? I think this movie's a little weird. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) It's like Joel and the bots didn't even know what to do with it. (laughs) Yeah, I find the best episodes are the ones that kind of veer in the weird territory. And I think really like the goofiness, like it just makes it such a top tier movie for this, because I think looking at it from the mystery science theater angle, I feel like the episodes that do the best for riffing it's either a movie that's really bad that deserves the verbal punching that it gets 
or it's just so kind of silly and goofy that it's enjoyable to watch and you feel like the writers had a fun time watching this one. And I think if they didn't have to watch like so many Gamera films in a row, I feel like like this one is one of the best just because of just how goofy and, and fun and silly it is. Yeah, th- that's the thing. I find that, and it's not just with uh, Mystery Science Theater. I think it's just true myself because, as Jimmy knows, <laughs> I do like to riff me some movies. Yeah, yeah, you do too. Yeah, we we have movie nights at my apartment here on the island, and you know we'll all you know you, me, and Jessica will all just hang out and watch a bad movie sometimes. And I find that the ones that are best for riffing are ones that are sincere. They wanted to make something good, and then they were limited either by time, resources, or talent to actually make something good. And I know for some people that might sound a little bit harsh when I'm talking about Showa Gamera, but have you seen Showa Gamera? (laughs) I'm just saying. It's no Toho. Let's be honest. (laughs) Yeah. But how about you, Luke? I got into MST3K actually very, very, very early because the first episode I saw was in season one. It was The Crawling Hand when it was on the Comedy Channel. This is before Comedy Channel eventually would merge with another cable network called Ha. They would form the Comedy Network, which would later change its name very shortly to Comedy Central. So I've been literally watching Misty since it was available nationally when I was in, I think, middle school. Wow. And I said it was The Crawling Hand was the first one because my brother and I, we were big B-movie fans anyway. My dad was a big genre movie guy. You know, My dad's favorite movie is King Kong 33. So we grew up watching Harryhausen movies and Willis O'Brien and all sorts of B-pictures and stuff. I got into Godzilla when I was four. So I was the right audience for this. And then it was, I want to say it was either a week or two weeks later, it was Robot Monster was the next oh. episode that we watched. And my, that's how my brother got into Misty was through Robot Monster. And from there, it was in like Robot Holocaust and Untamed Youth and Slime People and all those first season ups. So we were on board from the beginning. I was familiar with Gamera before this. I had seen War of the Monsters, you know, the AIP TV version of Gamera versus Barrigan. And I had seen Gamera Super Monster. I'd seen those both on TV, so I knew Gamera, but I wasn't super familiar with him. His movies didn't play as much locally growing up there in New York. So I knew about him from Jeff Rovin, had a book called The Encyclopedia of Monsters that I wish I still had my copy of. And in that book, Rovin talks about all the Gamera monsters and describes them. So I knew who they were, but I hadn't seen most of them. So I was very eager to watch these on MST3K. And this one in particular, this one is just... Especially since you go from Giant Monster Gamera to Berrigan to Gauss to this one. By skipping Virus, you skip that whole, hey, we're going to have two kids be the lead and make an absolute straight-up kids movie aspect that you get in this one. And so this one just seems way out there. And like you were saying, Greg, it's just so silly and so weird in spots that you just kind of roll with it. You know, it's like, okay, sure. To the point to when they're in the the uh, one of the buildings on Terra, and Tom says, well, what if goblins come out? You're like, well, of course. Why not? If goblins showed up, I'd be like, yeah, sure. Why the heck not? I bought everything else up to this point. Just like I said in the, the virus episode, this has a very fairy tale sort of structure to it. And to be honest, it's basically the same plot as the yes. previous movie. 
And the thing that's kind of funny, because it, it kind of blew my mind when I heard this, but as part of my research in the lead up to this episode, I did watch the movie with the commentary on the Arrow Blu-ray set, and I had forgotten that the commentary on this movie was done by none other than David Callett, who, if mm-hmm. you're, you are into academically studying these movies, you know that name. He's written, quite possibly, the definitive book of essays on the Godzilla series. He was very positive to the movie and defended it at every turn that he could. My favorite part being when the, and we'll talk about it, the the uh, infamous Gamera theme played. It plays twice in this movie, and he actually stopped in the commentary. He's like, you know what? Let's just have a dance party right now. <laughs> and he just shut up and let the music play. <laughs> but he said, this is the same movie as Monster Zero. I'm like, what? And then he started talking about the similarities between this and Monster Zero. And I'm just like, holy crap, he's right. To the main go, difference, they never, yeah, they, the monsters never make it back to Earth. That's the main yeah, difference. But the, otherwise, the, yeah. yeah. But it's more early on than the whole movie. But he said, like, you know, the two characters travel to another planet in a spaceship. They get out, they start exploring, and they find weird things, and then they meet aliens and. And then they said, oh, there's a monster that's here that uh, terrorized our planet. And, you know, so there's a lot of similarities early on after that. It veers off into its own thing. But yeah. So and as I say, some of the aliens are, you know, uh, to say wearing some very are very shapely wearing jumpsuits. (laughs) Oh, Flo Bella and Barbella. Barbella, not Barbarella. That's very different. Yeah. Although I would not be surprised if Jane Fonda was confused for a Terran on at least a few occasions. Just saying. <laughs> but yeah, so since we're on that subject, let's uh, let's talk about them, our villains in this. So I said that this has a very fairy tale sort of structure. The idea being, you know, like Akio and Tom. Uh, yes, I know, Jimmy. They're not you and Masao. I get it. Uh, you know, it's another mm-hmm. carryover from the previous movie. Got to have the white kid. And I'm going to be honest with you, since uh, I'll just mention this really quick. Uh, Christopher Murphy, the little kid who played Tom, he's no Carl Craig. I've often joked watching this movie is like, I think this kid is dead inside. He has no expression. <laughs> he's just kind of, he just has resting tired face the entire time. Just kind of stares yeah. forward. I'm just like, which, moat, which leads to a moat. <laughs> yeah. Well, that does lead to a, a great bit on the Misty episode. It's a great host segment involving that. He looks vaguely like Richard Burton. And so there's a whole host segment where Crow, as Tom, is reading lines of dialogue from Richard Burton's films. There's a whole, like, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf aspect to it. It it is. Yeah, I remember that. (laughs) I I was actually, I know it's not, I don't think it's this episode, but that, but the way that kid looks just reminds me of another host segment on MST3K that is just called Dull Surprise. You know, I forget which episode. That <laughs> That's this kid's well, face. Surprise. That was the Dreamwave Transformers comic in the 2000s was Dull Surprise. That was, that's <laughs> yeah. where I... Yeah, but better. anyway, so uh, these kids, the, the two kids are basically Hansel and Gretel and they've wandered into the woods and they found the witches who want to eat them. <laughs> because that is our villain's motivation. They want to eat the children. I mean, you don't get much more evil than that. You want to eat the children. <laughs> and as you pointed out, uh, you know, shapely jumpsuits. <laughs> that, yeah. If I was to give funny titles to my episodes, that might be the funny title for this episode, uh, shapely jumpsuits. <laughs> but I look at this, I'm like, you know what? This is very 60s. Mini capes, shower caps with antennae. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, as someone that's just coming into this as a Misty fan, I've seen like a, a couple of kaiju films, but, you know, not too many. I think this film's very uh, interesting in the sense that we have a couple of Western characters as uh, main characters, like uh, with, mm-hmm. with Tom and his mother. Oh, his mother. <laughs> interesting thing. I forget the actress's name, but I found out on the commentary that she was actually a missionary to India. And after she did her work in India, she moved to Japan and got into movies. I think before this, she was in uh, Space Giants, if I remember correctly. Interesting. Yes. Uh, Edith Hansen. Yes. Edith Hansen plays Elsa in yes, this movie. That is true. Yeah. So yeah. interesting little fact. Uh, but you know, it's, uh, you know, Greg, it's, it's a great point about the, the use of Western characters because that was carried over from the previous film. And so John LeMay, who has, uh, oh, has been John. on this, on this, uh, on this trade very show, John is a, is a great dude. Uh, I've talked to him before. My brother has recorded with him over on bots, bugs and babes, uh, several times. Most recently talked about King Kong lives of all things. But in his book, which has the, uh, I don't have the title, but it's, it's where he talks about the different versions. It's like, uh, the, you know, uncovering the lost kaiju films, the lost cuts, where he talks about all the different versions and edits made. He talks about this film has a very short chapter because there's very little change. But one thing he does about is that AIP apparently had enough sway back and forth with Dai at this point that they were generally understood to have made the suggestion to, hey, why don't you put a Western boy in with the Japanese boy so that when we dub this and show it over here in the US, now we can hit both of those audiences. And even to the point that now on this film, the suggestion of setting it in outer space and having more of a space theme rather than only a few scenes in outer space like in the previous film also came from AIP. So we hear about that sometimes like that Henry Saperstein or uh, you know making suggestions to Toho how they should change their films around to get them to sell internationally. Where AIP was doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, the way that a lot of the, I mean, they were making money, some money domestically, but it was seen as international distribution was how you were going to make your money doing these. If you could sell this movie to, you know, whether it's American International or UPA or Columbia or whomever in the States, then you could make some money. And then if you made some money, you could earn enough to make some more of these, which is what end- essentially happened here. Mm-hmm. So I agree with you, Greg. I run hot and cold with the show a Gamera film. Some of them are just like, and some of them I really like, but I've always liked the team up kid gang sort of aspect of them. One, because it plainly differentiates them from their competition. I don't have to hear it so much anymore, but they'd be like, Oh yeah. All those Godzilla movies with all the kids. I'm like, yeah, there's like two that have any kids in them. <laughs> yeah. And and it's like, it, and it's not what you're thinking. It's like, Oh, Godzilla with Kenny. Right. It's like, no, you're mistaken. Let's talk yeah, about this. Yeah. That's, so a, that's like camera, that but only in one of the dubs. Yes. Yeah. That, yeah. That's when you but have to pull I, out you know, the I'm, the kaiju nerd card and be like, "Well, actually, and yeah." <laughs> well, you know, you try to you know limit the number of cards you, you play at a time, right? But yeah. The so I I agree with you. I like that they have that because again, it, it differentiates them, but it does kind of go towards the commercial side of them as well. And that choice was made to sell the film internationally. Yeah. And one could even say that with Tom and his mom Elsa. Perhaps this was also done in a sort of vaguely European way that one could say, well, you know, perhaps she's, you know, because she's speaking Japanese in the Japanese one. Her name is Elsa. It's like she could be German. 
she could be Austrian or Belgian, you know, so they could theoretically sell this in other markets too, because they're just, for lack of a better term, just Western, right? Mm -hmm. They're not specifically American or specifically any, any one nationality. They're just their neighbors that happen to be, you know, not Japanese. Yes. Right. Now, related to that, I want to throw this out here as a, you know, as a little topic of discussion. And it's one of those things that I heard in the commentary, and as much as I respect David Callett and his work, he made a statement in this that took me back a little bit, which was he made the argument that AIP doing this, and this might be a little bit controversial, but he said that that was racist. That having a... Yeah, and the, uh, that the, AIP the saying you have, to ha you have to have a, a, a white kid basically in this movie and, you want you know, us it, to distribute it I, internationally I, and you know we don't think it'll do well without a white kid i could see that argument but at the same time i can see both sides of the coin right because one, one could easily make that argument saying well your movie's not going to play unless you have a, a white character in it but at the same time knowing aip that's roger corman's outfit mm. i guarantee you it came down to a dollars and cents issue Mm -hmm. with with AIP because that was their whole modus operandi was what can we do to maximize our profits and if that means that we get our partner in Japan to make a movie a certain way that means we can pay the same amount of, mon amount of money for the rights to distribute that movie in in the states and make more money then yeah then they're going to do it it's very mercantile and mercenary mm -hmm. in that sense and the other side of the coin i would say is that you know AIP did distribute other Gamera films that did not have any Western characters in them. Yeah. As a War of the Monsters jumps to mind immediately, which is not only has no Western characters, a major plot line in that deals with the Japanese dead in World War II. Mm hmm. Because of New So Guinea. there's something mm -hmm. to be said for that. So, uh, Greg, what's your take on this idea? I mean, it, it's hard to say. I mean, certainly the practice is still done this, today. You look at a lot of like what Disney does with the Marvel films, like with uh, Iron Man 3, they added a, like a completely uh, different character for just the Chinese market. Yes. Uh, with that. A lot of the stuff like with uh, like the Star Wars films where they kind of make like Finn less prominent because it's uh, not going to sell as well in China. On one hand, you want to see the film succeed because of its own merits and not just because it has somebody lo looking a certain way but i can kind of see that in, in some ways uh, why someone would say that it's racist but <sighs> me going into it i just think it's interesting rather than racist just because it's uh, so unusual to see this this kind of dynamic and i kind of like it mm -hmm. so different to me and so like that's actually why i feel like this movie also kind of stands out from the other gamma films just because of uh, the different casting with it yeah I don't know if that fully like answers the question or anything. Mostly when we think of racism, we think of something kind of malicious or, or something like that. But, uh... I, I think the implication I got from Cowlett's argument was that it was kind of like a mild form of racism, not necessarily malicious, but based on this idea that audiences have to have a character who looks like them or else they aren't going to be interested in seeing it. Yeah, I can see that, but I think most kids are just going to kind of root for the kid in the film. I would agree with you. Of, yeah. Of, of that. And so that's uh, that's how I I was as a kid. I was always rooting for the kid characters. So, yeah. you know, if if they had someone that, you know, kind of looked at like me, cool. If not, you know, I'll still find somebody that I, I, is my favorite. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm with if you. I make a, if I can make an odd sort of analogy. 
I'm a big fan of war comics. Every November I do hashtag war comics month on Twitter. We talk about war comics and Marvel's main entry in the war comics genre was the book Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos. Now this book is set in World War II, but the Howlers are an extremely racially diverse group. And now this is a comic published starting in 1963. So not too much earlier than what we're talking about. So in the Howlers, besides Sergeant Fury, you had Dum Dum Duggan, who most people know Dum Dum Duggan nowadays from his appearances in the MCU. Mm -hmm. But you had Izzy Cohen, who was a Jewish American. You had Gabe Jones, who was African American. You had Dino Minnelli, who was actually born in Italy, but had emigrated to the United States. Rebel Ralston, who was uh, from Kentucky. Pinky Pinkerton, he was British. And then Junior Juniper, I think he was from New York, I think is where Juniper's from. He actually dies very early on in the series. So right there, you've got an integrated unit. And first off, that's so delightfully Marvel, isn't it, to have an integrated unit in a book published in 1963, set in World War II. But it's diverse. Was Stan Lee and Jack Kirby and Dick Ayers, were they casting a wide net, perhaps, to show characters of different races and ethnicities in this book, perhaps as a way for perhaps a Jewish kid or an African-American kid or an Italian-American kid to see someone that maybe looked like them or remind this being 1963, perhaps like their dad that may have served in the war, perhaps, or perhaps that's just the kind of characters they wanted to put in it and they wanted to put some diverse characters in it. It's hard to ascribe motive after the fact, right? Well, again, was AIP saying, well, we're, we're not going to be able to sell this movie without a white face in it? Or were they saying, you know, we could make more money if one of the kids is white? I agree with Greg. It's hard to say because, first off, we're looking back at it, cheese and rice, 50 plus years after the fact, which doesn't help. But then we're also, again, none of us were in the room. We don't know the motive for it. Ultimately, consuming it, it doesn't strike me as that just from the final product. The final product is just like Greg says. They're two kids. They're two kids that are obviously friends and equals. Their parents get along. Mm -hmm. The moms are, are friends. They get along well enough for Tom to be staying at Akio's house. Mm -hmm. You know, so obviously they're presented as peers and friends. To me, it's it's a positive portrayal of a diverse uh, yeah. cast. Yeah, it's and, you know, it's, it's it's a very it's a very you, and and Nathan, you've talked about this before. It's a very sort of Japanese concept, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You talked about this, I think, on the Mysterians, the idea of the United Nations and Japan yes. seeing itself as an international power and getting along with everyone, mm -hmm. and we can all find common ground and work together. So uh, yeah. it's you know I, 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 I'm yeah, I'm I, in, I, I like the I like them the mixed yeah, cast. I I look yeah. at it very positively in this the idea that. I mean, it, if you really want to look into it, it's almost like saying, okay, this is a generation after World War II, and the Americans and the Japanese are no longer warring with each other. They used to be enemies, and now they're friends. It's the same argument I would make for Fuji and Glenn. <laughs> yes, Jimmy, your weird little man crush slash spirit animal thing you got going with Nick Adams, whatever. And it's same thing there, the, except in that case, it's a pair of adults. It's wonderful. I just wish Tom was a better actor. <laughs> I think also what, what helps, too, that with it uh, not really coming across as racist for me is that neither child is viewed as the comic relief or lesser. Like if mm. uh, yeah. one of them was acted more like Corncob. <laughs> corn job, uh, corn job, uh, uh, Officer Khan. You know, it's Kondo. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, 
acted more like the police officer rather than uh, the characters, then uh, I would say maybe there was a point to that. But uh, yeah, really, they each get a chance to shine and prove their usefulness. Yes, mm-hmm. and uh, we get a foreshadowing with Tom because apparently he's a marksman, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Jimmy, I know you're you're disappointed with his aim, I'm sure. Okay, not everybody can be a space warrior, okay? And we're introduced to Corn Job Con by uh, having Tom do basically a drive-by shooting. <laughs> <laughs> is it really a drive? Is it really drive by if you're on a bike? Is it more of a ride by? Yeah, it's a ride by <laughs> shooting. Yeah, it was just something. I heard that I can't remember the actor's name. Before. I think it's, the actor's actually is Con. It's Con something. I can't remember. The something for you to look up, Jimmy, for your blog. But he was actually a comedic actor. And for is it? Am I crazy? But I I was getting Andy Griffith vibes with this guy because of how goofy he's like Barney. Yeah, I was gonna say yeah, more more Don Knotts than Andy Griffith. Yeah, but yeah, yes. that's what I mean. There's a kind of a Don Knotts energy to him. And for what I understand, he was popular with kids. And I think on the commentary they mentioned that because he had his own kids and he. He said, oh, I'm going to be in a Gamera movie. And the, his kids were really excited about this. And they kept asking him stories about working with Gamera on set. <laughs> and he kept having to make up stories about it. Because <laughs> they didn't, it didn't oh, register wow. with them that Gamera you know, wouldn't be on set. So, <laughs> Just, uh, and Officer Khan doesn't have any any scenes with camera <laughs> until the very uh, no. end. Oh, uh, see, and that's the thing that's weird. And I mean, I like the characters like Khan, Cornjob, whatever on Earth. But honestly, I, I don't see why we even needed that part of the story. Like, you could cut those scenes out, and I don't think anything would really get lost. I mean, again, Stockholm Syndrome might be setting it. They're fun to watch, but it just it doesn't have impact on what Tom and Akio are doing on Terra. Uh, yeah, so I'm I'm kind of of two minds That's about true. it. I like though that they're there just for kind of showing what is going on with uh, the sister. Yes, mm-hmm. since she was left behind, you know, it kind of at least gives a glimpse into like, well, what happens, you know, after you know she sees them kind of disappear. Yeah, and this is actually kind of nice because I made the comment in the virus episode that one of the through lines that I've been seeing with a lot of these Showa Gamera movies, I've been noticing that every single one of them, with the exception of Barugan, obviously, because there were no kids in that one, we have boys as a character, and they have overbearing older sisters. And in this one, it's more like an overbearing younger sister or something. <laughs> we still got a sister, but now it's a younger sister. Yeah. Yeah. In this- well, you know, I mean, Dai knew who their target audience was. Their target audience was young boys. Yeah. And what's ickier to a boy than a, not just any girl, but a sister? Oh. Yeah. You well, know. and then, then we had this weird thing. But- and, you know, Callet did his best to defend this. So I get it from a storytelling perspective, but... The continuity-loving side of my brain kicks in, and it's just like, why do all of these adults act like Gamera and aliens aren't real? Did you forget the other four movies? <laughs> well, <laughs> why are not you e- saying not even I that? Think- I mean, apparently they did. For- they at least forgot the last one because the Terrans scan Akio's brain. And yeah, they find, oh, Gamera. Uh, like in Virus, except this time it's they're scanning the kid's brain and not Gamera's brain. But right. it's an excuse to oh, have yeah. stock footage. Uh, but, they, but they scan his brain and Barbella says, oh, no aliens. It's like, what about Virus? He was an alien. That was like his whole thing was he was an alien. <laughs> I know. I, it's just, you know, I don't understand. And I, and, I, and I will say this. Another piece of connective tissue between this and the previous film. Dai aliens always have the coolest spaceships. <laughs> 
I mean, I love the spaceship in Virus. I love the spaceship in this, you know? The one in Virus, to me, is like one of the neatest alien spaceships ever from a Japanese film. The one in this one is a bit less creative, but if you asked a kid, what does a spaceship from another planet look like? This is what they're going to basically draw, right? Yeah, it's going to be a saucer. (laughs) I mean, I will admit the Virassians bumblebees glued to a friendship bracelet ship is is a little hard to beat. Yeah. (sighs) But, you know, it's just, but for what I... Like 60s. Yes, it's very 60s. Now, my understanding was director Yuasa and Takahashi, the screenwriter, their idea with this was that one of the themes of the movie is supposed to be that the kids all believe in this fantastical stuff and the adults refuse to do it. So it's, I guess it's supposed to be like a little bit of a commentary on kind of the cynicism of adulthood because they keep wanting to squash what the kids know, but it's still, for me, just kind of flies in the face of the fact that you had four more movies with Gamera and a movie with aliens and you refuse to believe that your kids could find a spaceship and fly away. (laughs) What's funny is that theme is literally signposted in a wonderful way right at the beginning of this film when Akio says grownups have no dreams. Yeah, it's a very good line because that you're right. The kids all believe in this stuff because, of course, Gamera is to friend all children. And like you were saying, Greg, the parts where we get to see Tomiko trying to convince people, no, guys, seriously, they really were taken away on a spaceship to another planet. They're not just playing by the creek and no one believes her. And a great bit when all the reporters come to see her and they're all talking to Tomiko and the Misty, the riff is, you belong to the journalist now, kid, you know? (laughs) 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 And Officer Kondo, he believes her. Elsa even says, you're going to take the word of a child. He's like, well, obviously she must feel very strongly about it. So it is something, again, that's speaking to the target demographic. It's like, yeah, kids, parents don't necessarily believe you. Adults not necessarily believe the things that are important to you. But in this case, this really is a real thing. And so it is kind of that youthful vibe, again, that differentiates these films from the Godzilla series. You know, Nathan, we talked on Earth Destruction Directive about a, air quotes up to the mic, youthful vibe mm-hmm. in Godzilla versus Gigan, but that's a young adult vibe. That's not yes. a kid youth vibe. Yeah. That's a, it's a young hip vibe, not a, you know, young kid vibe. Those are two different things. Mm-hmm. And that's always kind of the knock on these is that they really are kids movies. Yes. And so they play with kid movie logic a lot. And they so it's do. like, oh, let's go do this. It's like, why would you do that? Well, because you're a kid. Yeah. Khaled also so. said in the commentary that this was a childish movie, basically in the best sense of the word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And now you'll appreciate this, Greg. I'm now subtly thinking of that scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when the two older Pevensey children are talking to the professor because they don't believe Lucy. So he starts asking, like, is Lucy prone to lying? And they say, no. Well, then your only two conclusions are she's lying, she's crazy, or she's telling the truth. And if you know she's not lying and you know she's not crazy... <laughs> No, that, that is very apt. Although I think in this case, it's coming from the idea, again, you know, adults have no dreams. Yuasa was younger, actually, than basically everybody making movies in Toho, and they went through the war. He only knew the war as a child, and seeing the war through a child's eyes made him distrust adults. So I think that plays into this. So Yuasa had a, a lot of childlikeness to him. So I think that that factors into what we're seeing in this. Although you want to know what doesn't seem like this would be very child friendly, but apparently things are different in Japan. 
let's talk about the gratuitous violence, the infamous gratuitous yeah. violence in this movie. Some of which, from what I understand, well, got cut when the movie was released internationally. Yeah. Uh, because yes. we haven't talked about this. Giron, the title monster in this, got his name from the word guillotine. And you can see why. If you've seen Pacific Rim, I have zero doubt in my mind that Giron inspired Knifehead because Giron is Absolutely. literally a Knifehead. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we have Space Gauss in this, which originally wasn't supposed to be Space Gauss. It was going to be another monster. Uh, let me find my note here on this real quick. I got this from John LeMay's book. It, uh, there was another monster that they were going to do. It's manga. Manga, yes. Monga, manga, however you say it. I would say monga, because manga you'd think would be romanized with an A. Yeah, and, uh, and uh, it was supposed to be a basically it was supposed was to be a big be blue a flying squirrel. Flying squirrel, yeah. Yeah. So uh, it ended up becoming space cows because they're. It wasn't because of money. I thought it was because of money. It actually wasn't because of money. It was because of time. They didn't have time to do it. So they said, "Hey, is there a Gauss suit in storage? Yeah, bring it out and spray paint it silver." <laughs> <laughs> That's basically what they did. And good Lord. I mean, Gauss in Gauss was not a sympathetic character, but I feel sorry for this poor thing. <laughs> I know it's supposed to be evil because Barbella and Flobella said, oh, the space Gauss came and overran our planet and Giron is our guard dog, basically. But good Lord, the things he does to that poor thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's funny also about Space Gauss, when you look at the Gamera series as a whole, is that when we first meet Gauss, Gauss is a singular. And then famously, in the Heisei films, Gauss would become a plural. And so that is seeded here because it is a flock, for lack of a better term, of Space Gauss that have overrun this planet. And we get that shot of all the, you know, this used to be a city, now it's the home of the monsters. So I kind of like that. I always kind of dug that, that there was this idea that, wait a minute, maybe there are more... Maybe Gauss isn't a single monster. Perhaps there are many Gauss. Yeah. And then they ran with that so wonderfully in the Heisei films. Yeah. Greg, like I said, it's been a long time since I've seen the MST3K episode. I know there were some good jokes with the <laughs> the Gauss butchering scene. <laughs> what were some of them? I'm trying to remember some of the riffs from it. I just, uh, like for me, it was just kind of, it's been a while since I had seen the episode. And I was just kind of blown away at just how devastating uh, Giron was in just uh, <laughs> dispatching Gauss. Yeah. I, you know what I was actually thinking of a little bit watching it? It predates this, but it reminds me of Monty Python, <laughs> the Black Knight. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I took your arm off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <my God>. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just a flesh wound i mean oh my gosh giron is mean <laughs> yeah they have to work really hard to keep giron under control here on the island he he's an unruly boy <laughs> to say the least oh <laughs> the, the wonder if i remember from that is when giron starts laughing <laughs> yeah. i think it's tom so it's ah his trademark laugh <laughs> and uh the other one is when the river flows in reverse he goes man now i gotta i have to go to the bathroom but backwards <laughs> and then when the river flows back in he goes now i gotta go to the bathroom again and, and joel's like will you stop it <laughs> <laughs> sounds about right but yeah and then he carves up space gauss like he's 
sushi, basically, because you know, apparently Gauss yeah. is just solid meat. There's nothing, if you look at the slices, no just bone solid or anything. Meat. But he's <laughs> cutting them up, I guess, kind of like tuna steak, right? You know, there might be a little bone in there, but yeah. Uh. <laughs> Oh the the Gamera films never shied away from monster gore. And again, I know that we, you said, oh, the extreme violence. Well, but it's violence among monsters. I think kids like that. I, you know, I don't, I don't think that did. would have turned most kids off. I think most kids would have been, especially most boys of a certain, it's like, that is so cool. He chopped him up, man. That's fantastic. <laughs> you know, Lord knows my sons would have been all over that. They would have been falling all over themselves yeah. laughing at that. Yeah. I guess too, like it kind of makes me think of a kid playing with his action figures and, yes. you know, using like his new action figure to like beat up one of the ones that he doesn't like and like taking the arms off and, <laughs> and everything. Urine again is a type of monster a kid would come up with. Yeah, it's like he's got a knife for a head. Oh, and he, oh, oh, and, and also, and also, and also, he's got throwing stars on the side of his head, right? And yeah, they can like launch out. Yeah, because ninjas were popular. So they just say, hey, you know what's popular? Ninjas. You know what else is popular? Kaiju. Ninjas. Put them together. And yeah. then you have Gamera so, you know, acting like he's Zatoichi and being like, haha, I block your shurikens. <laughs> yeah. There is some wonderful suit acting from Gamera in this. Gamera played by Umenosuke Izumi. Just like when he gets hit with the shuriken, he gets hit under the eyes and he's just waving at his eyes. Yeah. And then he picks up the blocks of ice and puts them on his face. It's like you can almost hear him going, owie, 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 yeah. You know, so that that's how a kid would react to that too, mm. you know? And then when, again, when he does the infamous gymnastics bar and then lands and does the, you know, the, when you land the bar in the gymnastics, you got to put your hands up in the air. Right, so we yeah. just da-da. Yeah, because yeah, because the <laughs> Olympics had just happened in Mexico, so that was a thing. They, I, I yeah. read an interview with Yuasa, and he said, "Yeah, we threw it in there because of the Olympics." Uh, you had something a minute ago, Greg. Well, I was just going to say just now too, and also when Gamera's kind of like jumping up and down on the back of Giron, like up and down, it, it's like the similar things that I do with like my son, <laughs> and just yes. entertain them. Yeah, the fight in this is interesting to say the least. And even the ending fight, like the way that Gamera just uh, dispatches Giron, that final uh, battle that they have where Giron gets like javelined like straight into the ground, you know, knife first. Yeah, okay. Let's talk about that for also a second. Also borrowed from Virus. Yes, but let's talk about that for a second because I have a little bit of an issue with the kids in this because... Uh, yes, Jimmy. Yes. You and Masao actually did things that were helpful. These kids, when they're helpful, it's by accident. <laughs> yeah. So they're just like, we have to help Gamera. I hit buttons at random. And they hit the right button. Well, they hit the wrong button and let gear on out, which was bad. But then he, out of plot convenience, he then jumps up and he's like, oh, look, uh, Flobel and Barbell are living. They can't leave. And he jumps up and magically cuts the ship in half. But only the model. The set's not cut in half. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, so he does that. And then they accidentally launch the missiles. And right. And, which I, one, I, and then I one flies off say. and uh, and conveniently hits the right building where Flobella is and she dies. Or is it Barbella? I get them mixed up. Oh, yeah, but it kills one it's of the space women, yeah. supposedly. And then Gamera grabs the other one and throws it into Giron and blows him up. 
yes, there's no intention of help here. It's just we, you know, but which kind of again goes with the kid movie logic, right? Yeah. I do have to say that the giant missile does have one of my favorite riffs in the entire Misty episode. I think it's Tom says it's a huge number two pencil. <laughs> And as a big fan of woodcase pencils, that that always uh, amused me. But what's funny is that besides, like I said, the idea of the monster being seismic tossed for you Pokemon fans, being (laughs) seismic tossed by Gamera and getting stuck headfirst in the ground, being recycled from Virus, the bit where Giran is stuck in the ground, they fire the missile. The missile is cut in half by his blade. Like you said, Nathan, one shot hits, hits Flobella and blows her up, and then the other one is grabbed by Gamera. I just love that the, that blade is so sharp that it cuts the missile in half, and it's so precise a cut that it doesn't blow up. That's like on the old Ginsu commercials, the infomercials where they would cut the tin can and then slice that tomato razor thin. Mm -hmm. That's sharper than that, man. That's like a monoblade type of situation. It's one millimeter thick at the the tip of Giran's blade. Uh, yeah. (laughs) Again, like you said, kid logic is the only way that you can accept anything in this movie. But again, that was the ultimate motivation. It's a kid's movie. We can't ascribe other things we can criticize and analyze. But ultimately, end of the day, they set out to make a kid's movie. And this is a kid's movie. Now, will you always like that as an adult? No. The Heisei Mothra films are a great example of kids' movies (laughs) that are a hard sell, a hard sell to me as an adult, because I'm much less forgiving of something that has the budget that those have. Whereas this, it's like, you get the feeling like, man, they're kind of just flying by the seat of their pants making this movie, aren't they? Just like, yeah, we could do that. Sure, we could afford that. Let's do it. (laughs) Yeah, but I will tell you, they had to do, uh, just like with the last one, there's some very, some of the kid elements in here, you know, the space women bring the boys donuts and I wrote in my notes is like is that supposed to make their brain sweeter when you eat them <laughs> and yeah. then speaking of which when they shaved the Japanese kid's head they actually had to pay that actor to do it they paid him 14 dollars 5,000 yen wow. to get him to, to let him shave his head wow yikes <laughs> I'm like okay <laughs> So I, I do have to question that. First off, the aliens in this, they also recycle the eyes from the Virens. Yes. The big yes. Iowa, the, the big eyes. Yeah. Um, what was that, Jimmy? Oh, yes. You you PTSD'd a little bit there because they look just like the Virassians. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, that was a little creepy, I I, I gotta admit. We're introduced to those two characters holding ray guns with the creepy eyes speaking gibberish, and you can tell they're like, we must kill the children. No, we can use the children. I mean, you can kind of infer what they're talking about. Yeah. I do have to wonder what the inherent message of Barbella and Florbella is. Is it, hey, young boys watching this movie, don't trust pretty older girls. I don't care if they've got shapely jumpsuits. Don't trust them. They might bring you sweet treats, but they're going to get you in the end. It's like, keep on buying your monster toys and watching your monster movies and stay away from icky girls, even if they are in shapely jumpsuits. <laughs> oh, well, like I said, I think they're... For uh, traffic accidents. Oh, traffic yeah. accidents. Uh, traffic Well, we live oh, in a I'm world sorry. without wars or traffic I ha- accidents. I have- I have to say this, another Misty reference, you know, 40% of all traffic accidents are caused by women's hinders. <laughs> <laughs> oh <my God>. <laughs> <laughs> so what you're saying is Flo Bella and Barbella probably caused some of those traffic accidents. 
<laughs> they are that you know evil. maybe maybe <laughs> yeah maybe not as many as Zegra's henchwoman and running around in a bikini in Gamera versus Zegra, but oh probably a couple. Oh, that's an episode and a and a movie for a different time. So, oh, oh good lord, that one. Oh, I have thoughts on that one. <laughs> oh man. Oh, uh, um, yeah. In the Mystery Science Theater episode guidebook, this episode contained uh, one of their most obscure riffs that they ever did for the show, and that's I forget which character does it. I think it, it, it's one of the villainous henchwomen. Tom Servo yells, uh, "Oh no, she's got Mike's keyboard!" And, <laughs> and then Joel was immediately was like, "Wait, what?" And Tom goes, "It's obscure." And the story behind that is that Mike Nelson had a ex-girlfriend that uh, stole one of his music keyboards from his apartment. Oh wow! <laughs> you know what's and, on, you know, and, and what's great is that Mike Nelson plays piano in this episode. Yes, let's talk about that. The Gamera <laughs> song. Yes, this was not the first movie that the Gamera theme was in that was Virus, but this is the first time it's in one of the MST3K episodes, and I will make no qualms about it. I think MST3K popularized the song with their parody version. I think the MST3K version is better known than the original, although that's yes. not hard because half the lyrics in the original Japanese version are just a list of planets or utter nonsense. So, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> okay. All Misty fans, I think, know we're all eating Gamera. Yes. Whether whether they're new fans, old fans, young fans, kids with chicken pox, whatever, you know, <laughs> like the old Armor Hot Dog song. But, you know, what's funny is that it was an interview I read with Joel where the interviewer asked him, what ones could you not tolerate? What movies could you not tolerate? And he, he was saying, like, the ones that were just dreadfully dull. Those were the hardest ones to get through. And the interviewer said, like, oh, well, what about the Gamera ones? And he said, no, in Gamera we trust. <laughs> because Gamera helped them get through this season. By doing all these Gamera films, they knew that they would be a strange movie, that they could write a lot of material and make a good episode for it. It wasn't dull. If you listen to any show that my brother Jason is on, he will say this no matter what the context. Don't be boring. You can be bad. You can be nonsensical. Don't be boring. That's what it boils down to. Like, these films are not boring. There's not enough flat material. It's just go, go, go. It may not make no sense, but it's energetic. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, and another one of my favorite riffs from the episode, and it's near and dear to me as a born and raised Hoosier boy, is <laughs> they make the joke that the Terran space women sound like they're from Indiana. <laughs> Because the dub, man, <laughs> this dub is so terrible. And the space women, they almost sound like they tried to give them a little bit of a southern drawl, but this is the quality of the acting. <laughs> well, yeah, it's like they shot for the south and they were off target, hit the Midwest a little bit, <laughs> you know. Let's talk about the dub for a minute because, okay, so generally speaking, in the West, if you grew up at a certain time, you saw Gamera films with the American International Pictures TV dub. But if you grew up at a later time, then you started seeing these international dubs, which are generally known as the Sandy Frank dubs, which led to the Sandy Frank song on Mystery Science Theater 3000. He's the source of all our pain. <laughs> Now these, much like we would see over in Godzilla, these were the international dubs that were prepared by Dai. So they were generally done in Hong Kong and they have that very kind of flat delivery. And ostensibly these dubs only existed, at least for Toa. This is what I've read. I don't know if this is necessarily the case for Dai, but ostensibly these dubs primarily were done to sell the film to an American distributor. 
not necessarily for the American distributor to take it and release it whole cloth, but just to put the film in English so they could watch it and understand it, then they would redub it with a better quality dub. Not so much the case here, but these Sandy Frank ones, when they were released on VHS, these started being the ones you would find. And that's how they ended up on MST3K, is that these were the ones that were available to be licensed to be shown. And oh my gosh, this dub is just so, it's so bad. It's unconscionably bad, but it it's like, again, painful. but it's like, okay, they're not native English speakers. So it's like, you have to understand. It's like, for them, it's just putting the film in English. It's like when you would get a Malaysian Ultraman DVD. It's like, oh, it's got English. It's like, yeah, it's got English, but it's English from a native Malay speaker. Just put the subtitles on because it's going to be very difficult to follow that just because one of the accent and two, just the way that English is presented. It's really, really rough sledding listening to this movie with that, you know, air quotes up to the mic, Sandy Frank dub. It is, oh gosh, it's tough. Yeah. Well, what are your thoughts on the dub, Greg? For me, it's not as bad as like the original Gamera where they had the added American scenes. With oh yeah. Uh, Gamera oh, double nice. M the invincible is what I like to call it. <laughs> yes. With those, really, they're like the worst actors in any mystery science theater movie ever, where it's just like a, Show the screen. And the boys are clearly voiced by grown women. <laughs> right. Definitely there's a lot of pausing and everything. I think the dub, it's certainly bad, but I feel like it's appropriate for the film that it's with. My main criticism of the dub is that, and if you have the big Arrow Gamera box set, mm -hmm. and I'm assuming it is also on the, the Arrow Showa era box set. Yeah. You also have access to that AIP dub, but that this film was released by AIP TV as Attack of the Monsters. Mm -hmm. And that AIP dub is much more in line with the type of dubs we were getting yeah. from Toho in the 1960s. It was done by Titan Productions, and it's a much better dub. Again, it's kind of out of favor now relative to that one. And now, of course, with the Arrow set, now everybody's just watching it in Japanese anyway. Yeah. So you got options. The other thing is, if you like your Titan dub, you can keep your Titan dub. But Attack of the Monsters is available very cheaply from like Alpha Video, mm -hmm. oldies.com. And uh, and so you can get it in that TV version if you, you want to hear it, if you don't have that Arrow set. To me, it, it's worth checking out just to see the difference between the two dubs. Neither really changed the story all that much. The story is so kind of simplistic and straightforward that they don't go into business for themselves. So it does come down to a matter of personal taste and, and what you're used to. I'm sure that there are folks perhaps my age or a little bit older that perhaps Attack of the Monsters showed on either their local UHF or on whatever syndicated package they had that have probably a lot of fond memories of that dub, much like I do for War of the Monsters. Mm -hmm. Well, the funny thing is, from what I was reading and all of the supplemental materials in that Gamera set is, obviously they knew where the AIP dub came from, but they didn't know where the terrible one came from. Someone had yeah. to do some digging to find it out. And it was actually a fan with really good ears who figured it out because there was another Die film, I think it was released the same year even, it's called The Falcon Fighters. I'm not sure what that is, but that dub was produced by Pedro, Pedro, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but it's P-E-D-R-O Productions, Pedro Productions. And they said it was most likely directed and translated by a guy named Pedro H. Komiyama. So that's who you have to blame for this. <laughs> <laughs> it's not Sandy Frank. It's this guy. Well, yeah. <sighs> well, I have, like I said, I have a bunch of notes on this movie. I will just mention one more thing before we get into the next segment, which is, and I almost made this the Toku topic, but the traffic accidents is more infamous in this movie. So I figured now I'll go with that. And that is the concept of a 10th planet. Mm. 
which, interestingly, you know what is another name for the 10th planet concept? Uh, it would be Planet X. Yeah. Oh, calm down, Jimmy. <laughs> so another name for this concept is the Trans-Neptunian planet because it's all about planets that are beyond the orbit of Neptune. Because after Neptune mm-hmm. was discovered in 1846, there was an astronomer named Percival Lowell who was a huge proponent of this concept that there were more planets beyond Neptune. And he spent a good part of the late 19th and early 20th century searching for it. He said there had to be another one because of, and I'm summarizing a whole lot. Calm down, Jimmy. Yes, I know. You know all about this, NASA boy. And he said people noticed that there were, in their minds, discrepancies with the orbits of the other planets. So there has to be another one. And then when Pluto was found in 1930, it seemed to confirm this. But then they revised that in 1978 when they decided that Pluto was too small to actually do anything to the orbits of the other planets. But then once you got to the 90s, people stopped looking for that. And I'm like, did you forget about Terra and Planet X? I'm just saying. Yeah. Uh, yes, well, Jimmy, the- I know you're still salty about Pluto not being a planet anymore. Okay, yeah, you're a Plutoist, I guess you could say. You still insist that Pluto is a planet. Yeah. Well, the thing about the 10th planet, that concept that I like, is that it's such a potent concept that it appears in science fiction all over the world. The two that immediately pop into mind, like you said, Planet X from Monster Zero, and again, similar here with Terra. But then the very concept of it was used as part of the origin for the Cybermen in Doctor Who, the planet of Mondas. Mm -hmm. The first serial to feature the Cybermen is called the 10th planet, and it deals with Mondas being Earth's twin. So it's a potent concept, this idea of another planet out there that either hides in the shadow of another planet or it's direct opposite from us so we can't see it. You know, because it's like we're so uh, like a lot of things in science, we are sure of it. But we as normal lay people have no way to prove it. We can't prove that there's not another planet out there. But we know, yeah, there's nine planets. Or there was nine planets. Now we can't (laughs) even say that. So that's why I think it's such a great concept to mind. And using it here, I always kind of forget about it. That it's like, no, it's not another solar system. It's a planet in this solar system, which is a pretty creative little touch. And again, it does tie it again a little bit to the ideal for Monster Zero. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, now let's move on to the Toku topic. This is Tokyo, once a city of six million people. What has happened here was caused by a force which, up until a few days ago, was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Tokyo, a smoldering memorial to the unknown. An unknown which at this very moment still prevails and could at any time lash out with its terrible destruction anywhere else in the world. Hi folks, Luke Giaconetti here. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Do you like giant monsters? Or as they're called in Japan, Daikaiju? Monsters like Godzilla, Rodan, Gamera, King Ghidorah, or Mothra? Do you like more obscure monsters, such as Gappa or Yangari? Do you like giant heroes like Ultraman or super robots like the Shogun Warriors? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then I think you might like my podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. I'm a dedicated fan of all things Daikaiju, and I'd like to share that with all of you. Please check out Earth Destruction Directive at Two True Freaks. Earth Destruction Directive, where we turn your daikaiju dreams 
into city-smashing reality. You're welcome, Luke. Hey, man, the check keeps clearing. We'll keep this arrangement up. That works for me. (laughs) Okay, so like I said, today's toku topic is going to be the first traffic war in Japan. And if that term sounds strange, I will explain. But just out of curiosity, were you like most modern Westerners who watched this? Did you find Akio's obsession with traffic accidents to be a bit odd? Yes. The first time I heard this, I was a kid, so it didn't really make a lot of sense why we compare war with traffic accidents. But the more I've thought about this, and perhaps overthought about this is the right term. So all through this film, we see Akio and Tomoko, and we see their mom. We see no sign of their dad. Mm. Okay, the closest thing to a father figure they have is Officer Kondo, right? And he's always saying a perfect world with no traffic accidents. So are we to imply perhaps that Akio and Tomoko's dad died in a traffic accident? That's the only thing I have taken away from this at this point. I don't know if that's too heavy or not the right target, but it's like that's what I kept thinking is that perhaps that's why he wants a perfect world with no traffic accidents because that's how they lost their dad. That makes sense. What about you, Greg? Yeah, I mean, you don't see Tom's dad either, so it could be in the same boat there. Possibly, but it's only Akio who brings it up. True, but then again, Tom might just be so traumatized that even bringing it up just brings up some PTSD with that. <laughs> so is, are you saying that that's why Tom looks like he's dead inside the entire yeah. time? <laughs> I, I, it sent him into a spiral of depression. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I know I shouldn't be laughing at that, but that is, it's still a little bit funny. Oh, calm down, Jimmy. Okay, I know you got your own PTSD issues to deal with. Okay, I get it. War in space and all of that. Hmm, yeah, you still can't look at Chewbacca the well, same way, people, can you? <laughs> I was going to say, but most people don't suffer their PTSD by looking like Richard Burton. So, you know, it's a... <laughs> yeah. But everybody mourns in their own way, I guess, right? So <laughs> This is true. But yes, the thing is... There is actually a reason for it. It's not just some random thing. It's not some quirk of Akio who just, for whatever reason, is obsessed with traffic accidents. It is actually a thing. And interestingly, for what I found doing some research on this, believe it or not, car accidents are more dreaded in Japan than in the U.S. So, to give a little bit of a background, Japan started motorizing after World War II and has divided its traffic accident fatality trends into four different eras. Up to 1970, 1970 to 1981, 1981 to 1992, and 1992 to the present. We're going to be focusing on the first era, obviously, because this movie came out in 1969, right at the end of the first era. And during this time, traffic fatalities increased rapidly, and they reached their peaks in 1969. Oh, yeah, the year this movie Mm. came out, and in 1970. The later part of this era is called the Traffic War because the fatalities exceeded the total Japanese fatalities of the first Sino-Japanese War, which lasted from 1894 to 1895. So there you go. That's the origin of the naming convention. Otherwise, it honestly sounds like a ridiculous Transformer story. <laughs> the first traffic that is, war. That, you know, it's, it's the first 
the first traffic wars of Cybertron. <laughs> but, you know, it's funny because when you talk about the motorization of Japan and the rapid growth of the imports of motor vehicles and stuff after World War II, I always think about it a little bit later. You know, you think about in the 70s with the rise of the motorbike and the motorcycle, mm -hmm. which we see reflected in not only in Daikaiju film, but also in Kamen Rider. Kamen Rider was a, mm -hmm. a direct response to the popularity of motorcycles in Japan. And part of the my understanding of that was one of these motorbikes and motorcycles were popular was because, you know, you've got a relatively high population density in the cities, getting to be a very high population density in, in parts of Tokyo and the other major cities. And it's just easier and more fuel efficient and cheaper to get around with a motorbike or a motorcycle. But that those also led to a lot more inherent risk. A motorcycle is nowhere near as safe as a passenger vehicle, especially if you have passenger car versus motorcycle. Yes. The fatality rate for motorcyclists getting hit by passenger vehicles is unfortunately very high. That is why we have numerous campaigns to be on the lookout for motorcyclists in the U.S. But it makes sense. Think about the images you have in your mind of Tokyo. And then think about all that number of vehicles all in a relatively small space crammed together. And it's not surprising that they had just a very strong upward trend for the number of fatalities from traffic accidents. So it does make sense. That's always kind of the collateral damage, if you will, from the rush of modernization, is that a lot of technology is not compatible with human life. We see this in every stage of an industrial revolution. We see that it's the humans are the ones that suffer when technology clashes with other technology or clashes with itself, because we're frail. The machines are not, mm -hmm. you know? It's again, another kid thing. I mean, a traffic accident, it's scary enough when you're a driver. Imagine if you're a kid. It's about the closest thing that, as a kid, you can think of to being assaulted or it's as loud as a gunshot. It's loud, it's scary, and it takes loved ones away from you, potentially. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, absolutely. I can see it as part of Akio's motivation. If we're literally at the peak of this in Japan, that, yeah, that would be something that a Japanese child might say, you know, in a perfect world, maybe they wouldn't have this, so we wouldn't have all of this going on and all these fatalities and all these people losing loved ones because of it. Jimmy, did you send Luke my notes? Yeah, when were you guys going to tell me this? Because seriously, <laughs> you're right ahead, man. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, certain things can be interpreted multiple ways, but this one seems kind of straightforward to me. That is, especially in Japan, where that's always been in the Showa era. That's one of the defining features of the Showa era that has continued on into modern Japan. It's the culture clash, the push and pull between the modern world and the more rural world, the agrarian fishing-based and other agrarian-based economy versus technology, the two sides of Japan as a culture, mm -hmm. which always seem to be kind of at clash with each other. So it would make sense, you know? Whereas in here, that's the thing also, is that it's hard sometimes, I think, for us as Americans to really understand the population density of not just Japan, but a lot of Asian countries. And the idea of how much you really are on top of your fellow citizens just because of the size that you have to work with. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on this, Greg? I think it's, you know, especially impactful like in like a children's film, because I think one of the earliest lessons that we all learn growing up is to look both ways before crossing the road. Yes. Mm. And that's because traffic is such a dangerous aspect of everyone's life. And it's like one of the first dangers you learn about as a child. Mm -hmm. uh, and you look in, in this film where you see the three kids going around on their bicycles, going just out and about on the town and everything. 
they're having to deal with traffic and uh, this is like a, a danger that is you know it's part of their everyday life even though they're having fun and everything like it you know they don't have to really worry about something like heart disease or uh, old age or anything like right now like one of the most dangerous things that could end their life is because of a vehicle coming out of nowhere mm-hmm I would say it's the most relatable kind of way that a child kind of first learns to deal with facing death. Mm -hmm. I guess in a way it also makes it interesting that the two things that Akio is bringing up is war, which for children that might seem like something that's really far away and it doesn't really touch their lives, but they understand what it is and that it's bad. And then traffic accidents are things that they can witness. And then you know, this whole thing is called the traffic war. So maybe Akio was reading the newspapers and saw that term floated around. So he kind of grabbed onto both of those. The other thing is, too, is that so look at the ages of the kids here. One could presume from the ages of all the children that their parents probably didn't serve in the war. No, they're you know, young. that their parents were probably kids during the war or maybe teenagers during the war, depending on how old you want to present them at now. And we all kind of know this, especially in Daikaiju film. The war was not something you talked about in Japan in the post-war period. You did not bring that up. So comparing war with traffic accidents is two things that I guess perhaps could be seen as preventable. Mm-hmm. You know, in the post-war period, Japan is like, there's no, you know, the great feelings that the generation that served in the war that managed to survive, and then the complex feelings for those that didn't, that came up after that. Perhaps that's part of it, too, is that on a perfect world, those could be prevented. Yes. It's not like something like disease where that's a natural thing. Maybe it's tragic and does hurt people, but that's still part of the natural world. Whereas war and traffic accidents, those are things that we created and unleashed yes. on our world. Yes. And all of the stuff that we've been talking about, there is connections with all of that. The increase in traffic accidents is actually connected to the Japanese economic miracle and the fact that they were growing as an economic power. But because of all of this, the Japanese government saw this as a very real crisis and they had to take measures to curb it. But just to give a few numbers to what we're talking about, so Japan's gross domestic product increased quite a bit at this point, as well as their population and their road lengths. Just to put this into perspective, in 1951, there were 4,429 traffic fatalities. But in 1970, which is when this peaked, there were 16,765. And there was a 40-fold increase in car ownership during this period, and the population grew by 23%. So it went from 87 million to 103.7. And the GDP went from 8.5 trillion yen in 1955 to 75.3 trillion in 1970. So it's all wow. connected to that. The main victims of traffic accidents were children, but also yeah. the aged, pedestrians, and cyclists. And there were more young people, as in less than 16 years of age, and old people, which were 54 and older, who were non-car users who got injured or killed in these accidents. And Japan is densely populated because 75% of it is mountainous. And then mm -hmm. the roads have to cut through those, which just increases the difficulty. And that, you know they have to go through a lot more urban areas. So it's hard to isolate pedestrians and cyclists. And that's no surprise because they make up 60% of the auto accidents. 
And this article I was looking at was talking about two different kinds of traffic accidents in Japan. And they said the most common one before the 1970s was what was called the mobile weapon, which sounds a little bit funny, but these were vehicles causing pedestrian injury or death. And then in the 70s, it went to mobile coffin, which was incidents mm-hmm. that kill the drivers or passengers of the cars. So I like the imagery there. So either you're killing someone with the car or you're getting killed in the car. Which is different than the United States, because the United States, there's a higher proportion of fatal accidents with other vehicles as opposed to pedestrians. Yes. You know, again, that is a function of space, right? We do a better job of segregating our vehicles and our people. In the cities, you still get crosswalks and all that, but it's a fairly standard procedure now of how crosswalks work and, you know, cross against the sign. And Greg, you hit the nail on the head. That's one of the first things we learn about looking both ways. Well, if you grow up in a more urban environment, you learn how to cross the street with the signs, with the traffic signals, right? You learn, no, you wait for the walk sign. You don't go. If you're already in there, when it starts flashing, you hurry up and get through. I grew up in a fairly, really deep suburbs, like in like ruralized, you know, directions to my house when I was a kid involved turn off the paved road. But my dad grew up in the Bronx. So we go to the city very often as a kid. So I learned at an early age how to deal with traffic like that. You're right. That is a very real threat. And like you said, Nathan, with those statistics, that's a very real and and immediate thing when you're a kid, especially in, in a situation like this with the population and the trending with car ownership and pedestrian fatality. Yeah. And one of the things that I found interesting looking through all of this is, as I said, the Japanese government jumped in to try to intervene on this. And so they've done things like they have been putting in a lot more traffic signals and road markings, and they've run campaigns to encourage people to comply with the rules of the road. And also they've designated driving schools with uniform curriculum. In other words, it's a little bit difficult to get a driver's license in Japan. (laughs) They established a compulsory road training program for obtaining a driver's license, and it has a system of short training courses that you have to undergo every three years to renew your license. So they take this very seriously. They want to make sure that the drivers who are on the road are competent. Isn't that just the most Japanese possible solution to that problem? (laughs) A a mandatory, compulsory, very organized training system that has very meticulous records, I am sure. (laughs) You know? (laughs) It does sound like that. I get the feeling that this was decided by a room full of very stern-looking gentlemen in dark suits. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) The same guys who, uh, in, in 1970, implemented the Traffic Safety Policies Basic Act, which formulated the first fundamental traffic safety program, which went from 1971-1975. And then the 10th fundamental traffic safety program, which was from 2016 to 2020, was talked about in 2015. So yeah, they took this very, very seriously. And what's interesting Mm. is that they tried to calculate the actual loss that they experienced from this. And in 2004, they estimated that 4.4 trillion yen was the annual monetary loss caused by traffic accidents. And they also talked about what they called non-monetary loss, which included things like psychological pain and suffering, loss of the joy of life and so forth. And so they estimated that that came came out to around uh, another 2.3 trillion yen. Which they yeah, uh, used to say. You used, don't necessarily uh, think of 
a cost, you know? Yeah. They use something called the WTP, which is the willingness to pay to figure that out because the uh, WTP is the maximum money that someone considers to be able to pay to avoid a traffic accident. Mm Mm-hmm. And they said that the WTP accounts for about 75% of the fatal accidents. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's, when you get into the statistics and putting a, a cost on it, you get into some some interesting metrics. You know, you get a little bit into the weeds a little bit. But yeah, you can. Yeah, I mean, there you was know, a it, lot of stuff that I yeah, was coming it's, it's, across that applied to this. Yeah. Now, we've mentioned a few of them already, but obviously the ways that the Japanese have been trying to curb this includes traffic safety facilities and road traffic environment regulations and law enforcement, education and publicity. They've also done it by improving vehicle safety standards and, interestingly, emergency medical care because you got to take care of people when they actually do get into accidents. Hmm. Yeah, well, again, in my industry that I work in, we deal with design and engineering and construction. And you never just change one thing, right? Everything that you change has knock-on impacts that eventually snowball. And the term we use sometimes is an avalanche effect, where you change one thing and it impacts so many other things that at the end of the day, when you look at the overall cost, it's tremendous. It's flabbergasting almost. So it's kind of the same idea here not thinking of it as a change, but thinking of it as an event. And that event has the immediate impact. The traffic accident that kills someone has an immediate impact. It has then secondary and tertiary impacts that radiate out from that, that once that genie is out of the bottle, so to speak, Mm -hmm. that those impacts cannot be avoided. Right on down the line, every impact eventually adds up and it leads to, like you're talking, when when you're trying to put a a monetary value on something like this, that is not a, a transaction per se, but it does have a monetary value. It has an impact and it gets down into the microeconomic theory. It's opportunity cost here even. What opportunity did you miss out on because money had to be spent because of the results of this accident? So if you can prevent that accident, what opportunity then do you have the ability to use that resource for? Mm-hmm. We're getting a little bit into micro, I say microeconomics 201 here. Yeah, but it, it's a, <laughs> But it's the right idea, right? There's no simple problem. Mm-hmm. The solution is easy. Just do this. It's like, well, okay, but that solves maybe the symptom, but that doesn't solve any of the other either root causes or the other effects are still there. So, you know, again, you don't think of it, but it is a complex system and all complex systems Mm -hmm. by their nature tend to get quite complex and grow even larger. That's what chaos theory is based on, right? That complex systems are impossible to predict because there's too many variables. Mm-hmm. And so here you have too many impacts from one event. So it makes it very difficult to accurately tally the full cost of that event. Mm-hmm. One of the other things that the Japanese have been doing to curb this is they've passed laws related to seatbelt. They revised the law from 1951 that required all passenger vehicles to have seatbelts installed in them after 1975. They also, in 1971, required all drivers and passengers on expressways to wear seatbelts. So they've been increasing the strictness of the laws related to seatbelts. There is another kaiju connection to this because you know another thing that they did to curb these accidents, specifically when it came to children? Yellow baseball caps. Japanese children, many of whom were latchkey kegs, wore bright yellow caps to make themselves visible to drivers. And they often were in blossom with the logos of popular Japanese baseball teams in order to sell the hats This was a common sight Mm -hmm. on sidewalks in urban Japan, and we see these in Godzilla's Revenge. Ichiro wears one. Yeah. And we also see it in Oshima's movie Boy, both of which were released in 1969. 
oh, what else was happening in 1969? The traffic fatalities were at their peak. And that was also and the year this movie was released. And we have a kid who's mildly obsessed with traffic accidents. Exactly. So there you go. Exactly. You yep. can make it fun all, of a all, cheer all, all you connected. want. But he wore that silly, bright-colored baseball cap so he wouldn't die. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, you do what you got to do, right? You wear your high-visibility stuff. Right. <laughs> so Akio <laughs> is not crazy. That's Kenny. Kenny is psychotic, but Akio is just being a child talking about a very real thing in childlike terms. So next time you hear anybody make fun of Akio for his obsession with traffic accidents, you can tell him, shut up. Let me educate you. <laughs> uh, all right. To explain to Japan's uh, fascination with giant robots, because you can't get into traffic accidents uh, flying around in a giant robot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, is, Jimmy can vouch for that because <laughs> he has a giant robot. He has two, actually. So <laughs> he flies me around in one of them to get me to all of my guest spots on other podcasts. <laughs> so I think we can close up shop here pretty quick, but I'm going to say we just breeze right through this because right now I'm able to make this episode without any memos and announcements to read from my Aurelian overlord. So let's skip on ahead to another segment that will be a little bit unusual today, and that is listener feedback. Yeah, I was only able to avoid it for the live broadcast and after the show and everything else that happened that day. The board sent me an email that in no uncertain terms said that I needed to include their announcement in the podcast version if I wanted to avoid violating my contract and getting shot into space. Yeah, Jimmy, I know you're not too happy with the board either because they brought in somebody who impersonated your mother when JR and Jack came by a few weeks ago and she managed to convince them that she was your mother despite the fact that, as you've pointed out numerous times, your family died during the war in space. Uh, calm down, man. I get it. I get it. You played along on the air so you could avoid getting into trouble, but after the fact, you were just upset and you can no longer contain yourself. I get it. Let's just get this board announcement over with. The silly thing is, this is something I mentioned earlier on in the episode, but it has to be the official announcement. So here we go. From the board's Twitter. We are pleased to announce that the newest member of Monster Island has arrived. The science team is still deliberating on what to officially name him, so for now, we'll go with the current consensus and call him Titanus Doug. Doug will be housed on the south end of the island and will be an excellent attraction for our younger visitors. Thank you to the excellent team that have brought Titanus Doug safe and sound to the island. This is yet another step in finding a better way forward for everyone here on Monster Island. There you go. And now, back to the episode. And interestingly, I scheduled out some listener feedback for this episode, and the guy whose feedback I had scheduled to talk about is actually on the show. So, <laughs> Luke, would you like to read your email? <laughs> Absolutely. And now a reading from Luke's email to the Monster Island Film Vault. So this is in relation to your Prophecies of Nostradamus episode. The subject is Prophecies of Nostradamus. And Luke writes, Nathan, hey man. Wanted to drop you a quick line to let you know that I enjoyed you and John LeMay talking about prophecies of Nostradamus recently. As a fan of both Japanese tokusatsu and Western disaster films, Toho's panic films hold a unique place for me, crossing the bridge between the two camps. 
I often describe Prophecies of Nostradamus as the craziest disaster film ever made because Bano and company throw in not just everything and the kitchen sink, but the plumbing and light fixtures too, for good measure. It's jammed filled with ideas and imagery at the expense of the story, making it almost a work of art more than a commercial film. But it definitely is a memorable cinematic experience. What strikes me about Prophecies of Nostradamus is its cruelty and unrelenting depiction of suffering. The family being burned by the solar radiation is bad enough, but add to that the family being washed away in the flood while sitting down to dinner, or the family trapped in the freeway explosion, complete with screaming baby. Yoshimitsu Bano, thy name was not subtlety. <laughs> Lastly, I did want to add my two cents. You and John were discussing the unproduced sequel and what may have been represented by the quote, king of terror coming from the skies. Personally speaking, I subscribe to the theory that especially in a Japanese film, the king of terror in this context has to be a nuclear weapon. I am reminded directly of the Megadeth song Rust in Peace, where the Polaris missile is personified as a nuclear murderer and speaks to the listener in the first person. Thanks, and looking forward to more Daikaiju Enlightenment, Luke. I actually am terribly amused by the fact that you worked in Megadeth <laughs> into this discussion. <laughs> Kudos well, to you, sir. <laughs> well, well, I mean, Rust in Peace is a song that has spoken to me for many years. I just love that it, it's such an anti-war song from a band like Megadeth, you yeah. know, whose name comes from a measurement used in the explosive force of a nuclear weapon. Ah, that's interesting. So, Are you yeah. familiar with that song, Greg? No, I'm not, but I'm familiar with the band. Okay. It's off their uh, 1990 album, Rust in Peace. Yeah. That song is called Rust in Peace Polaris, and it's the last track on there. But yeah, the King of Terror has been interpreted to mean a nuclear weapon in, in other contexts. And I have to presume that, especially again in, in a Japanese film, that that's how, yeah. you know, how that would have to be interpreted yeah. here. That wouldn't um, surprise me at But all. the thing with prophecies, like I said, it, it's so cruel. Bano yeah. didn't shy away from that, and he didn't do it in Smog Monster either. I watched Hedra with my kids a couple months back when I was prepping to do it on Earth Destruction Directive. And there are some scenes in that that, you know, were a little upsetting to my younger boy, who mm -hmm. is, was nine at the time. I won't show him Prophecies of Nostradamus. Oh, I mean, yeah, I forget no, that. You know? yeah, no, you shouldn't. Just to fill you in a little bit, Greg, the Prophecies of Nostradamus was a film that I covered a few months ago. It's actually a banned movie. It has been stuffed into Toho's vault because it became controversial. It was a massive hit, but it was controversial. Honestly, really only because of a 30-second scene. And the movie tricks you and makes you think that this is actually something that's really happening when really it's just illustrating a hypothetical that's being discussed by a honestly kind of a crazy scientist in a speech where a nuclear apocalypse happens and there are these absolutely sickly, disturbing little mutants that show up and they fight over i think it was a worm of some kind trying to just worm. yeah just yeah. To scrap together some food and it was deemed offensive to survivors of the nuclear bombings so it has been stashed away but there are people who've managed to find copies and have made them available to people in bootleg circles it's an interesting little movie but it is not for the faint of heart for sure that's interesting. I, lately, I've been listening to like a lot of YouTube videos about lost media, mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. I, I find that to be like, an interesting topic, especially with Mystery Science Theater. We had missing episodes until recently. Same with Doctor Who. So two things yes. yeah. on topic with this episode. Yeah, well, the thing is with those, 
those are just media that has just been lost either through negligence or something like that. These were intentionally thrown into the vault with no intention of letting them out. And I've covered actually two of those on the show. One was Half Human, which was from the 50s. It was basically a Sasquatch movie. And that was deemed racist because of a mountain tribe that was in it that worshipped the snowman. It's just one of those things that just shows how the attitudes toward subjects like this are very different in Japan compared to, say, the United States. Because you can go on Amazon right now in the United States and buy Birth of a Nation on Blu-ray. But Toho's little abominable snowman movie and Prophecies of Nostradamus are supposed to be hidden away and never spoken of again. And it'll be interesting, especially as we go into more of a digital-only type of uh, media and service, and less having physical media, if we're going to run into that even more now, especially with, mm-hmm. with when you're dealing with stuff like cancel culture, changing uh, you know, feelings of, uh, and values, mm-hmm. and you wonder if, well, like right now, we're kind of in a good age where we have a lot of the stuff that has been missing, you know, unless it's been lost in like a fire or something, but... Uh, mm-hmm. There may be stuff in the future where it's going to be impossible to find just because uh, there's no physical media of it. Mm-hmm. And the sort of thing that we saw with Toho and their attitude toward both of these films, in a way, is kind of an example of that. They're worried about potentially offending people, so they just say, like, okay, we're just never going to show these movies again, and we're going to pretend that they never happened, which I just, it disappoints me in a way, because I do think these films should be allowed to be viewed so people can just make up their own dang mind. Plus, I think enough time has passed that people can watch those films without so much of the baggage. You know, maybe I'm yeah. crazy saying that. Well, you know, it, and it's it's hard to say also because it is a cultural difference too. Mm-hmm. Half human, I think some of the subtleties of that group of people and how they have been treated may be lost on us because we're not part of that culture. Yeah. But in the case of Prophecies of Nostradamus, there will be people that will argue like, well, it'll, it'll never be okay to depict the survivors of nuclear war in that way. And again, Japan is in a unique position to comment on that. A, yes. a Japanese person would be in a very unique position to comment on that versus a citizen of any other nation, especially yeah. the United States. By the same token, from an artistic standpoint, I do understand your point and I do agree with you. Long ago, back about 2000 two or so, Walt Disney started releasing these very handsome tin collections of their short subjects. I have both volumes of the complete Donald Duck, as I'm a big Donald Duck fan. And some of those early shorts won't really fly some of the stuff that they get away with, especially in their depiction of Japanese characters or, and what have you. They now look at them now and they're just saying, like, wow, that is a kind of an offensive racial stereotype. But a lot of those, what they would do is they would introduce them. And I think on that set, it's Leonard Malton specifically introduces them and says, look, these were products of their time. They are presented here for historical purposes, but we don't endorse these views. These views were wrong then and they're wrong now, but Mm -hmm. this is what it was. And shining a light on it to say, yeah, this was as it was produced in 1942. And there's not denying that it happened, but understanding the context of why it happened so that, yes, whether you agree or disagree with the depiction of the soft-bodied humans, you know, whatever your feeling is, now we can at least look at it and discuss it and have that discussion and not just throw it in the memory hole and say, nope, never happened. Yeah. Warner Brothers has done something similar with some of their Looney Tunes releases. That's that's right. Yes. Mm -hmm. I've heard of the Leonard Malton uh, introductions and uh, 
Yeah. I'm glad that they exist because I really do feel like this stuff needs to be preserved. Uh, even if we don't agree with the stuff that it has, it's just, I don't think there's anything wrong with at least, you know, showing like where we've come from and where we've grown as, you know, a society. Yeah. Hey there, kaiju lovers. We were having some technical difficulties that day. So for this insert, I am going to do that most important of segments, the Patreon shoutouts. Go Travis Alexander, Michael Hamilton, Danny Demana, Eli Harris, Chris Cook, Damon Noise, and Bex from Redeemed Otaku. Thanks a lot, guys. And remember, you too can join MIFV Max on Patreon. And for as little as $3 a month, you can get perks just like this. Check out the links to Patreon in the show notes. And now, once again, back to the show. Now I need to let everybody know what our next episodes are going to be. After this, I will be concluding my mini-sode, air quotes up to the mic as Luke would say, mini-sodes on Toho Classics with Sayonara Jupiter. (laughs) Have you seen Sayonara Jupiter, Luke? I have not. That is on my list of ones I want to see, though. I've heard very interesting things about Sayonara Jupiter. Of course you're looking forward to that one, Jimmy, because space and all of that. I haven't seen it yet, so should be interesting. And then after that, the year of Gamera will be continuing with what might quite possibly be the zaniest out of all of them, arguably. Who knows? You know, it's everything with Gamera is debatable. Gamera versus Jiger. <laughs> Oh, goodness. That one was not on MST3K. And I will be joined by my longtime podcast friend and Kong fan. He was on before for one of my Kong episodes, Ben Avery, who I'm telling you guys, I think he runs a small podcasting empire. (laughs) He's got his hands on a lot of different shows. And he's an avowed monster lover. (laughs) So this should be interesting because, like I said, Jiger's nuts. (laughs) But no episode of MIFV would be complete without shameless self-promotion. What have you got for us, fellas? Although, Luke, I've already helped you out because I played an ad for your show. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and that ad is, as always, appreciated. First off, I just got to say, as far as Jiger, she's got the moves like Jiger. That's all Uh, you you need to know about Jiger. You beat Uh, me to the joke. Congratulations. When I covered Gamera vs. Jiger on Earth Destruction Directive, which is a Daikaiju podcast you can find at 2TrueFreaks.com, that was the name of the episode, was the moves like Jiger. But uh, yeah, so Earth Destruction Directive is my main podcast. I've been doing this, uh, Cheese and Rice, it's been a decade now that I've yes. been doing uh, Earth Destruction Directive. Hard to believe, but there it is. You're the old vet now. <laughs> I know. I'm the, I'm the grizzled young vet. Uh, <laughs> he's a grizzled young vet. He's a grizzled young vet's a different thing. So um, we cover all aspects of, uh, of Daikaiju culture, movies, TV shows, video games, toys. All the things. Yes. And uh, that can be found at 2TrueFreaks.com. I also am a co-host on The Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, which is a horror film podcast, which I co-host with my brother Jason Giaconetti, the 2 True Freaks OG Chris Honeywell, and the hair metal hero Chris Tyler, which can also be found at 2TrueFreaks.com. And I also am a co-host on Get Back to the Wrestling. Finally, there is a podcast on the internet about professional wrestling. I co-host that with my brother Jason and the hair metal hero, also at 2TrueFreaks.com. 
Two True Freaks is T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. So please, if those sound interesting, please go check them out. All righty. And what do you got for us, Greg? Oh, uh, yeah. You can check out my old podcast I was part of called Out of the Speed Force, where uh, me and my friend Dave went through a CW Flash TV show until uh, I just kind of got sick of it and the CW-ness of it. Yeah, uh, I understand. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, actually, it was Ralph Dibney getting fired uh, was like the last straw for me where I was mm. like, okay, I'm done. Yeah. Yep. Um, but you can go back and kind of check some of our thoughts on that. We did so, like a good stretch of the episodes from season one when the show was like at its amazing peak when it was like a fantastic show. So, uh, yeah, you can uh, check my stuff out there. All right. And also, you and I have collaborated on some writing projects that yes, you know, things like up. children of the wells and things like which we really should get that revitalized i'm just saying <laughs> i need to bug nick yeah, about well, that nick hayden for those who don't know yeah <laughs> and i need to talk to you about kind of about some ideas that i've had of kind of a doing like something similar at least uh like a blog or something like that but yeah i yeah, know um we both have written books uh for the children of the wells well i've written a book here's in the hidden but uh, yeah nathan you've also you know written uh at least two i believe yeah a couple uh, of them books. yeah I'll uh, leave some links to both of those in the show notes. So, uh, yes, Jimmy, I know. We're crunched for time. Oh, Jessica came back. Uh, she's going to be coming with the three of us so I can put you guys up in the Monsterland Resort because my guests on the show always get the star treatment. Five-star rooms, you're going to have a good time, and hopefully, Greg, Mona doesn't mind that you spend a night here on the island, and maybe we'll send you home with some nice Monster Island-themed groceries, so hopefully she won't mind. <laughs> yeah, I'll probably have to uh, spend a lot of time taking care of the baby and make up for that. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Luke, you can tell your boss that uh, your night at the island needs to, you know, he needs to cut the check for that. <laughs> well, all I know is I'm going to have to take that tunnel back. <laughs> I don't know that I'm looking forward to that. I'm just putting it out there. Yeah. All righty. Well, with that, gentlemen, Jimmy, cue credits. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nate Marchand. If you enjoy the show and want to join the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Your message could be read on a future episode of the show. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter, where our handle is at TheMonsterIsla1. You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASAJimmy and the Monster Island Board of Directors at MonsterIslaBOD. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations! And be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, and Twitch. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wanderer on the Offensive Live Edit by B33J, Sarax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack Battle with the Colossus and The Open Way Battle with the Colossus by Koatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus. All film and audio clips belong to the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended or implied. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and or Podchaser to spread the word about the show. You can also support us by joining MIFV Max on Patreon. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara! 
Sounds like Luke and Greg are going to enjoy themselves at the Monsterland Resort. And why wouldn't they? This place is basically G-Fest on a kaiju-sized dose of steroids. Speaking of which, I think some people who are on one of those G-Tours are visiting today, and I'll be taking them to see Gamera after lunch. Oh, yay! The new board-appointed King of the Monsters. <laughs> I forgot that you don't approve of that decision. Yeah, because that decision has been causing trouble for the last six months since they announced it. Kong and Godzilla wrecking things back in December. The Gamera Gala shenanigans I went through. Heck, even Kong getting drunk at the Godzilla vs. Kong premiere might have been connected to it, from what I hear. Well, the Gamera Gala stuff was kind of your fault, Baka. Fine, I concede that. But Jimmy and I wouldn't have needed to play James Bond if this whole thing didn't seem shady. It does look suspicious, that's for sure. And I'm warning you, Jess, you can't trust anyone connected to the board, including Miss Perkins. You say that, but I'm not sure she's the true believer you think she is. We can talk about this after I finish my shift. Gamera is waiting for my next tour, so... Huh? I didn't hear anything about a spaceship arriving today. Oh, no. You recognize the flying saucer? Yeah, and someone needs to call Captain Gordon before... Oh, my Mothra! How dare they hurt the friend to all children! Jessica, hold on! They're kidnapping Gamera using a tractor beam! That's because they're... The Terran Spacewomen, Flobella and Barbella, at your service. Wow, those translator choker things make you sound like you're actually from Indiana now. I should know. I'm a born and raised Hoosier boy. Shut up. We didn't come here to kill any humans, but I might shoot you for being annoying. <laughs> Get in line, Space Witch. Jessica, not helpful. <laughs> Remember when we used to fight like that, sister? <laughs> Yeah, didn't one of you betray and murder the other before dying herself? <laughs> you humans and your primitive fourth-dimensional thinking. Let me at him! Uh, no, Jessica. But I'm... I don't need to eat any brains to figure out you two alien wenches came down here to gloat. So tell me, why are you here? Isn't it obvious? It's only in the song you humans love so much. What song? Gamera is really sweet. He is filled with turtle meat. You're kidnapping Gamera so you can eat him? To absorb his knowledge and power, yes. It's what we do. <laughs> Plus, we've talked with enough of his foes to know he's delicious. Mmm. You want Gammy? Come and claim... <clears throat> if you'll excuse us, my pseudo-sister has to... Touch up her makeup in the restroom over there. Come on, Emoto. What the? Let me go. I can... You need a firm foundation on that pretty face. That's such a smart move, humans. Your brains might be worth eating. Perhaps they can be our appetizers next time we come to Earth. What are you doing letting them kidnap Gamera? Dang it, Jess, I'm a film curator, not an alien fighter. 
This is a job for Monster Island security. Yeah, and their track record is only slightly better than Starfleet Securities. How do you know that? I inherited some of your useless knowledge, remember? My point is it's not our job to do something. That doesn't sound like you. But more importantly, did you forget that I'm a superheroine? And you were on the verge of blowing your cover in front of everybody. I've read enough comics to know it's a terrible idea to let the villains know who you are. It's bad enough that the board knows it. <sighs> Point taken. Plus, you've never fought a supervillain before, and... And... I don't want you to get hurt. Aw, Baka, you do care. Don't rub it in. But this is who I am, Baka. I have to help Gamera. And how am I supposed to protect the island from bigger threats later if I don't get any experience? Oh, come on. You uh, you say this, but did you not read the Civil War comic? Did you remember what happened Baca. to Spider-Man? Okay, that did not work out very well Baca. at all, and it led to one of the worst comic book ba stories that I have Nate. ever read. What? I got this. <sighs> Fine. Here, hold this. Huh? Y your wig? You might want to stand back. This'll just take a few taps of my barrette. Why? What are you- Shine, Crystal Lady! What the- It's a chrysalis made of crystal? A crystalis? How is- With Mothra's blessing, I will smite evil! Wait for me! Hey, brain eaters! Let me be crystal clear, you're not taking Gamera. We don't know who you are, but we won't be stopped by bad puns in a garish costume. That's funny, coming from space bimbos wearing shower caps and mini capes. You useless! Luminous Crystal Moth Shield! Oh jeez, an energy shield? You'll get a kick out of this. Look him down with the shield. Hot dang. Now to free Gamera for the kids! Lightning laser! For that! Eat, eat laser bug girl! Sparkly glitter storm! <laughs> it's a twister! And it's bedazzled? Are they dead? No, just stunned. I'm not a killer. <laughs> I forgot you come from good stock. <laughs> Keep telling yourself that. The cavalry really needs to work on its punctuality. You say that, but I had fun. I'm sure ja uh, Crystal Lady. I don't know what you did, Marchand, but I like the results. It wasn't me, sir. You have Monster Island's very own magical girl, Crystal Lady, to thank for this. That's right. Villains can't beat my crystal methods. Oh. <sighs> Excellent work, young lady. When my mutant boys can't handle a threat, I'll give you a call. Great!
Wait! Talk to Baka here to get my contact info. When did I become your agent? Just now. Noted. And by the way, Marchand, expect to hear from me soon about an unrelated matter. Yes, sir. Now if you'll excuse me, I have a couple of alien women to arrest for attempted kaiju napping. Not bad for my debut as a superheroine. Gamera is certainly grateful. Of course! Next to Mothra Leo, his son Toto is my best kaiju friend. Why am I not surprised? I better power down and get back to tour guiding. Bexy and I are going to have so much to talk about tonight when I call her. What happened to time zones being a thing? Touche, Baka. Touche. <sighs> My pseudo-sister, the superheroine. Life is never boring on Monster Island. 